Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to uh, see so many of your faces. I'll just trust Stephen Misiuna to yell at me if I'm not working, but I, I believe I am. Okay, <laughs> so please be seated if you're not already. Since our pastor Keith is away for a couple of Sundays, we're taking another short break uh, in our sermon series in Hebrews. Instead, this morning, we'll be considering a text from the part of the Bible called the Torah, the law. Christians and Jews give that name to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books together tell the story of how God called his people into being, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, made a covenant with them, adopted them as his special chosen people, took care of them in the wilderness, and finally brought them into the land of Canaan, as he had promised to do. And so these books also record the many rules and commandments that he gave them over the course of that journey. The law that would govern their new life in that promised land as God's covenant people. We're looking at a part of that law this morning, Leviticus chapter 25. And I would really encourage you even more than usual to go find a Bible and open it up to Leviticus chapter 25 because there's a lot going on in this chapter. It will be very easy for me and for you to get lost in the details. Um, so, so please have the text open in front of you and I'll, I'll tell you uh, where we are in the text as we go. Let me also give you a quick outline of the whole text just so you can have it in your head. Basically, this chapter covers four things. The Sabbath year the Jubilee year, the redemption of land, and the redemption of slaves. Four things, the Sabbath year, the Jubilee year, redemption of land, and redemption of slaves. We're going to talk about those four things in that order. And my hope and my prayer for this sermon is that as we go through the chapter, the Holy Spirit will help us to understand God's commands, to, to know what the heck is going on in this chapter not only to understand them, but to see that his commands are really good for his people and to see that his commands also point forward to the great salvation that he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. God's first command in this chapter is that the people of Israel observe a Sabbath year. But before we dig into the Sabbath year, I think it will be helpful to refresh our memories about the Sabbath day. You probably have heard of the Sabbath day, even if you haven't heard of the Sabbath year. Back in Exodus chapter 20, observance of the Sabbath day is one of the Ten Commandments. Here's Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male slave, nor your female slave, nor your livestock, nor the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So every Saturday, no matter how much work there was to do, all the people of Israel, even the slaves, 
foreign guests and domestic animals were required to rest from their work in remembrance of how God himself had rested after completing his creation. You no doubt remember that story from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created the world over the course of six days. At the end of every day, he looked at his work and saw that it was good. But he kept creating day after day. On the sixth day, he created humankind. And when he looked at his work that evening, he saw that it was very good. And it was only at this point, the beginning of the seventh day, that he rested from his work. To better appreciate what it means that God rested from his work, let's imagine someone is building a chair. So she gets out her materials, she joins the first few pieces of the chair, but then she takes a break. She's planning to come back and finish the work tomorrow. So in a sense, she's taking a rest, but that's not the kind of rest we're talking about here. She only really rests from her work in this biblical sense when having made the last join, having put away all her tools, there's nothing left for her to do except enjoy the finished chair. We only truly rest from our work when the thing we were working on is complete and it's ready to enjoy. That's what God's rest was like on the seventh day. He wasn't just taking a break. The creator's work was done. And the thing he had been working on was ready to enjoy. This rest could only come on the seventh day after the creation of humankind. Why? Because from God's perspective, the whole point of creation was to share his rest and his enjoyment of good things with humankind. Until humankind was there to enjoy the good creation with him, creation wasn't complete. Once humankind was there, it was time to stop working and to start enjoying the finished work. Time for God and humankind together to enjoy the world that God had made for them. This is why God created the world, so that he could share with us his rest, his enjoyment of every good thing. But when our first parents separated themselves from God by sin, humankind lost that rest and that enjoyment. We had been made very good, but we made ourselves not good, and we brought the whole good creation down with us. But our creator loved us still and sent his son to save us. You might remember how in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1, the pastor described our salvation as entering into God's rest. Entering into God's rest. That's what God made us for, and that's what God saved us for in Jesus Christ, to share with him his rest. So when in Exodus chapter 20, God commanded that Israel keep the Sabbath day as a day of holy rest, he was instituting a weekly reminder the Sabbath was a weekly reminder for Israel of why he had created humanity in the first place. It was a weekly reminder of what humanity had lost through the disobedience of sin. They had lost that rest. But more than this, it was a weekly reminder of God's promise and an anticipation of that promise. His promise that he would one day make a way for them to enter into his rest again. 
not just one day out of seven, but forever. Once, in, once a week, Israel gets a taste of what God will one day share with his whole people forever. So that's the Sabbath day. But in Leviticus chapter 25, our chapter, God commands a Sabbath year. Every seven days will be a day of rest, but every seven years will be a year of rest. So let's look now at verses 2 to 5. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 2 to 5. When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath for the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. We'll talk in a moment about what it will mean for the people to observe the Sabbath year, but notice that it's not in the first place a Sabbath of rest for the people. Rather, verse 4 calls it a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. In some sense, the land itself can rest. That's interesting. But what's even more interesting is that by resting, the land itself can honor God. It can honor God by keeping a Sabbath for the Lord and to the Lord, as verses 3 and 4 put it. Not only the land, but also all other parts of the non-human creation can honor the Lord. For example, we heard when we were talking about the Sabbath day that livestock, domestic animals, are commanded along with their human owners to keep the Sabbath day holy. But if someone makes his donkey work on Saturday, then that donkey can't keep the Sabbath day holy, and God is not honored. And if the people keep working their fields on the seventh year, then the land can't keep its Sabbath for and to the Lord, and God is not honored. So the non-human creation can honor the Lord, but only if we humans let it, only with our help. Going back again to Genesis chapter 1, remember that humankind is the creature created in the image of God, and that it is to humankind that God gives dominion over all life on earth. And this is what our dominion over the non-human creation means. The way that we use the non-human creation, the way that we manage our relationship with it, the way that we care for it or abuse it, determines whether or not it can honor God fully. I don't want to overstate this. In one sense, I'm sure it's true that every part of God's creation honors him no matter what, no matter how badly it is damaged by human sin. But in another sense, the more a given creature is damaged by human sin, the less honor it brings to God. So, for example, all birds honor God just by being his creatures. But a bird that dies in an oil spill brings less honor to God than a bird who can live healthily in a clean and stable habitat. A dog that has become mean after years of abuse and mistreatment from humans brings less honor to God than a dog that through being treated well by humankind learns to love and serve. 
and land that is degraded after humans relentlessly exploit it for profit year after year honors God less than land that is allowed to rest and replenish itself. When Christ our King returns to the earth in judgment, he is of course not going to blame the oily bird and the mean dog and the ruined land. He is going to judge the creature who had dominion over all of these. That's us, humankind. And God does specifically warn the Israelites that they will be judged if they don't let the land keep its Sabbath. In Leviticus chapter 26, the next chapter over, we read chapter 25. Chapter 25 is actually just the first half of a speech that God gives to Moses. Chapter 26 is the second half. We don't have time to look at it really at all today, but let's just check out chapter 26, verses 33 to 35, where God describes one of the punishments he will send to Israel if they do not keep his law. Chapter 26, verses 33, I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall have rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. In other words, if Israel doesn't let the land keep its Sabbaths, God promises to provide rest for the land in another way, by chasing the Israelites off their land. God is serious about letting the land rest. So, the Sabbath year is not primarily a rest for the people, it's primarily a rest for the land. But, by giving the land a rest, God is also taking good care of his people. For one thing, letting fields lie fallow, letting them not grow anything, Every once in a while is is good agricultural practice. It allows the soil to replenish the nutrients that it needs to produce crops the next year. And in the long run, it means better harvests for the farmers. But this benefit alone doesn't account for the Sabbath year. If God were just trying to give the Israelites a good farming tip, requiring them to fallow all the fields in the whole country at the same time would be a weird way to do that. Right? Normally, a farmer wouldn't want all his fields fallow in the same year. He would rotate them. He would stagger them so that some of the fields were productive while others rested. After all, he needs to harvest at least a few of his fields every year. That's how farmers eat. But God provides a different way for farmers to eat during the Sabbath year. Let's look now at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So this might seem a bit confusing. What does it mean that all the land's yield shall be for food if they aren't allowed to, like, sow and harvest anything. It seems confusing, right? The consensus of Christian and Jewish commentators is that the law here makes a distinction between harvesting food 
and eating it on the spot. So an Israelite farmer can't go out into the field and gather in the whole field into his barns for later use. That would be harvesting, and that's not allowed on the Sabbath year. But if he's hungry, he can go into the field and pluck a head of grain and eat it on the spot. That's not harvesting, that's just snacking. <laughs> so that's allowed. That doesn't disturb the land's rest. Of course, his servants and his animals, and even the wild animals, are allowed to do the same thing on this year, stroll right into his fields and eat whatever they feel like eating, as long as they eat it on the spot and don't harvest it for later use. In a sense, the farmer becomes for a year like one of the wild animals. Remember how the Lord Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, not to be anxious about our life, but to consider the birds of the air, how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Well, on the Sabbath year, the Israelite doesn't only consider the birds, she gets to imitate them and practice eating the way they do, not gathering into barns, but fed by the hand of the Father. So Israel can get some of its food for the Sabbath year this way, through casual foraging, but their father, who knows their every need, anticipates their concern that it will not be enough, and he promises to provide in another way too. In verses 20 to 22, that's what's there now. Verses 20 to 22. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So God promises that the harvest of the sixth year, the year right before the Sabbath, will be plentiful enough that the people can keep living off it all through the Sabbath year and even into the eighth year when they're just starting to sow their crops again. There's nothing the people can do to make this happen, of course, right? No matter how hard they might work, they could never make the harvest of the sixth year three times bigger than usual. This depends totally on God's blessing. So the Sabbath year becomes an opportunity for God's people to practice their trust in him. He promises to provide, to command his blessing on them. And they must learn to depend not on their own efforts, but on his own freely given blessing. And to appreciate the full significance of this, let's dip one more time into the early chapters of Genesis, the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Before their disobedience, Adam and Eve's whole existence was, as we saw, a participation in God's joyful rest. Before their disobedience, they could eat without toil. But after their disobedience... God said to them in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, The ground is cursed because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This is what life is like for all of humankind after the fall. And this is what life is like for Israel six years out of seven. But on the Sabbath year, Israelite farmers stop eating by the sweat of their face and are fed by their father. They get a reprieve 
from the painful toil of the curse and are instead the recipients of God's blessing on them. We saw that the Sabbath day is a sign of our salvation, right? A sign of God's promise that we might one day enter into his rest forever. So also the Sabbath year is a sign of our salvation, a sign of God's promise that we might one day enter into his blessing and his provision forever. What Israel experiences this one year out of seven will one day be experienced by faithful people of every nation, seven years out of seven. So the Sabbath year is a wonderful gift of God to his people and a wonderful promise of better gifts still to come. But if you think the Sabbath year is exciting, you're going to love what God came up with next. The year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee takes place every seven Sabbath years as a kind of mega Sabbath. Verse 8 says that the Jubilee takes place every 49 years. Verses 10 and 11 call it the 50th year. This is potentially confusing, but they're actually saying the same thing. It's kind of like how Jesus rose again on the third day. Sunday, the day Jesus rose, is of course only two days after Friday, not three. But if you count Friday as day one, Saturday is day two, then Sunday is indeed day three, the third day. So the same kind of thing is going on here. If you count last Jubilee year as year one, then next Jubilee year is year 50, even though in between there are only 49 years. Hope that made sense, but if you didn't follow it, don't worry about it, it's not important. The point is that, as I understand it, the Jubilee year is the seventh Sabbath year. So the rules of the Sabbath year apply to the Jubilee year as normal. Verses 11 and 12 repeat the instructions that you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, but that you may eat the produce of the field. So this is the same distinction between harvesting and eating on the spot that we talked about already. But on top of that normal Sabbath year stuff, God commands two new things. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. You shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So the two things that set the Sabbath year apart from a normal uh, excuse me, that set the Jubilee year apart from a normal Sabbath year are the proclamation of liberty to slaves and the return of each person to his property. And of course, these correspond to the two concerns of the rest of the chapter, the redemption of land and the redemption of slaves. So we'll look at those now, starting with the redemption of land. Everything that this chapter says about the sale and redemption of land in Israel is based on the principle given in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. God is the one who gave the earth to humanity. 
and God is the one who gave Canaan to Israel. All the earth is really his. We said as much earlier this morning when we read Psalm 95, the Venite. In his hand are all the depths of the earth, and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands prepared the dry land. So the land is mine, says the Lord, and you are strangers and sojourners with me. The Israelites were in Canaan, and we, wherever we are this morning, are on earth as God's guests. We shouldn't presume to act like we own the place. Instead, we should follow the house rules of our divine host. And here are the rules that he gave the people of Israel for their stay in his land. When God brought the people of Israel into Canaan, he gave each of the 12 tribes an inheritance. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 34 and in Joshua chapter 14. He gave each of the tribes an inheritance. The short version is that the land was divided up and a portion was given to each tribe. Then each tribe's portion was divided by clan and each clan's portion divided by family. So the end result is that every family, every household in Israel has a modest inheritance of land, which is passed down from one generation to another. Land, of course, was the basic productive resource in the ancient economy. And by apportioning the land in this way, God had set things up so that every family in Israel had the means to produce what it needed each year. The rules about the sale and redemption of land in this chapter of Leviticus are meant to keep things that way. They're meant to keep every family having enough to produce what it needs. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Instead, verse 13 tells us, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So you can sell your ancestral land temporarily, right? Perpetuity means permanently. You can't sell your land that way, but you can sell your ancestral land temporarily. In other words, you can lease it. That's what verses 14 to 17 are describing when they talk about selling land according to the number of years for crops. To give an example, if you sell me part of your land and uh, there are 30 years before the next jubilee, um, the price should reflect that fact, right? So the price should reflect the number of years before the next jubilee coming because we both know that when the jubilee comes, no matter what, no matter how much I paid you, the land goes back to you. This means your family can never lose its land because it's really God's land. And he has granted it to your family. And every Jubilee year, he gives it back to your family. And in fact, you probably won't even need to wait until the Jubilee to get it back. Look at verses 25 to 28. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay the balance back to the man to whom he sold it, and return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee 
in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So to redeem something means to buy it back. And land that is sold because of the seller's poverty can be redeemed at any time, either by the seller's extended family or by the seller himself, if he finds the means. And it actually gets easier and easier to redeem the land as the Jubilee approaches, because God fixes the price of redemption at the original price of sale minus the amount for the number of years that have passed. So if you sold your land to me for 30 shekels, because there was 30 years coming to the next Jubilee, let's say, well, the year after that, your kinsman can redeem the land for you by paying me 29 shekels. And the year after that, just 28, and so on, until the year of Jubilee itself, when you get it back for free. That's what verse 27 means when it says, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay the balance and return to his property. So see just how much God is doing to make sure that the poor of his people are not dispossessed of their land. If poverty forces you to sell your land, God commands that any of your relatives who are able redeem it for you. And if your relatives aren't able to do this, then you can redeem it yourself as soon as you can afford to, and it gets cheaper every year. And if you aren't able even to do that, then God will return it to you himself at the Jubilee. So see how many levels of legislation there are here, making sure that the poor do not lose their land. In verses 29 to 31, God clarifies that this rule applies to agricultural land and rural houses in particular, not to houses in walled cities. I think this is basically a distinction between productive property and luxury property. It's a matter of indifference to God whether every Israelite family has a house in a walled city, because that kind of property doesn't produce any food. But it's a matter of urgency to God that every family have farmland and an adjacent farmhouse, because these are productive resources. These are what make each family able to support itself year after year. In verses 32 to 34, God gives different protections again for the Levites, we don't really have time to get into that today, but if you want to know why God needs the Levites to maintain their urban houses, you can read Numbers chapter 35 on your own later this week. Let's move on to verses 35 to 38, which are a kind of bridge between the section on the sale and redemption of land and the section on the sale and redemption of slaves. So verses 35 to 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. I say this is a bridge between the section on land and the section on slaves, because one of the main ways people then and now lose their land and lose their liberty is through debt. In our society, if a debtor doesn't make his interest payments on time, his creditor can foreclose on his house and on his land. 
In the ancient world, if a debtor doesn't make his interest payments on time, the creditor can foreclose on him and his children. They become slaves. But among God's people, neither of these things should happen. Because God's people should not be lending money to each other at interest in the first place. God's people are, to use the word that God uses throughout this chapter, brothers. God's people are brothers. And a good brother, a God-fearing brother, doesn't look at his brother's poverty as an occasion for profit. A good brother does everything he can to support his brother. Brotherly love doesn't lend money at interest. It looks out for the other's best interest. And so we come to verses 39 to 41. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. If somehow, even after all these other protections God has put in place, your fellow Israelite becomes so poor that he needs to sell himself to you as a slave, you are to treat him not as a slave, but as a hired servant, a hired worker and a sojourner. In another country, this poor person and his wife and their children would become slaves of the buyer, the property of the buyer and his heirs forever. They're stuck in slavery. But in Israel, under God's law, this person should be treated like a hired worker, basically a contract employee, with the term of his service limited to the next jubilee. His children will not be deprived of their liberty. They will soon return to their ancestral lands and farm them as free Israelites. So this is the proclamation of liberty that we heard about in verses 9 to 10. Sound the loud trumpet and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. When the trumpet sounds on the day of atonement in the year of Jubilee, all God's people are restored to liberty and to a relationship of equal brotherhood. So what exactly is the basis for that liberty and that brotherhood? We are told in verses 42 to 46. For they are my slaves whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. The ESV translates it there, for they are my servants. But the word is the same word that's used for slaves everywhere else in the passage. So verses 42 to 46. For they are my slaves whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. 
So the basis for the brotherhood and liberty of Israelites was their common servitude to God, their common slavery to God. The people of Israel cannot be sold as slaves because they're already slaves. Their lives already belong to the Lord God who rescued them from Egypt. Just as the land that belongs to God cannot be sold in perpetuity, so the people who belong to God cannot be sold in perpetuity. The Israelites' freedom from slavery is based in his slavery to God. So that's why God here also permits the Israelites to take slaves from other nations. I know this is a difficult part of this passage that we might have lots of questions about. We don't, I don't have time to talk about it super fully today, but I, I hope this makes some sense. God permits the purchase of slaves from other nations at this time because other people from other nations weren't yet to be treated as brothers. They weren't yet to be treated as brothers because they hadn't yet become God's slaves. At this time, it was only the people of Israel who had been brought into God's servitude. But in the long term, God's gracious plan was to deliver people from every nation and make them his own. So that now, through Jesus Christ, Gentiles, like me and most of you, can also become God's slaves. There may be something in us that recoils at this way of putting it. Right? When I say, we too can become the slaves of God, it may not sound like good news. We don't want to be God's slaves because we don't want to be anyone's slaves. We just want to be free, plain and simple. And we think what freedom means is that nobody can tell us what to do. Nobody can prevent us from doing whatever we want. In other words, our idea of freedom is to be our own master. But the truth is, the self is a ruthless master. When I am free to do whatever I want, what I do is not good. It's not good for the people around me. It's not even good for me. When I am my own master, I am a slave to the sin that is in me. The freedom God gives us by becoming our master is not the freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom to love and to do whatever is truly good. However contrary it may be to our sinful intuitions, the truth is that we are more in possession of ourselves. We're more like the people we were created to be when we submit to God and obey him as master. This is what we're talking about when we pray each week, as we just did, in the collect for peace, O oh God, to serve you is perfect freedom. As Romans chapter 6 puts it, God has set us free from sin and made us slaves of righteousness. Our slavery to sin led only to our shame and death. But our slavery to righteousness, our obedience to, to righteousness and to God, is now producing holiness in us and is leading us to eternal life. But to give us that perfect freedom by becoming our heavenly master, God first needs to set us free from sin, the old master. In other words, he needs to redeem us. So let's look at the rules for the redemption of slaves given in verses 47 to 55. 
if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother becomes poor and sells himself to a stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, in other words, if an Israelite has sold himself to a non-Israelite, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. We'll skip verses 50 to 52, which just tell us that the price of redemption gets lower every year as the Jubilee approaches, same way that we saw for land. Picking up in verse 53, he shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are slaves. They are my slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So just as an Israelite can redeem his poor brother's lost land, so an Israelite can also redeem his brother from slavery. In both cases, the redeemer is a relative who out of love for his brother pays a cost incurred by the brother. You were the one who sold your land. You were the one who sold yourself into slavery. But your redeemer is the one who pays the cost to buy you back, to buy back your inheritance and your freedom. This is, of course, why scripture calls Christ our redeemer. Just two weeks ago, we heard from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, that Christ by his death redeems us from our transgressions so that we who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He redeems us from our transgressions so that we who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now we've seen in this chapter of Leviticus that a redeemer can redeem either lost land or lost liberty. Well, Christ is our redeemer in both of these respects. Christ returns to us our lost liberty by redeeming us from our transgressions, our slavery to sin, and by putting us under the mastery of God who protects us from any other kind of slavery. Christ also returns to us our lost ancestral land. He redeems for us the eternal inheritance which we jeopardized by our disobedience. That inheritance isn't just a parcel of farmland in Canaan, but a whole heaven and earth. The land of our first parents, the garden of paradise. The place where we could share God's rest and his enjoyment of the whole good creation. That's the inheritance. That's the inheritance that God gave us in love, that we lost by our own folly, and that Christ redeemed for us, that he bought back for us by his death. And who can be a redeemer, according to the law? One of his brothers, his uncle or his cousin, or a close relative from his clan. So our redeemer also became our close relative, taking on our humanity in his incarnation, becoming one of us so that he could save us. Scripture calls us the slaves of Christ, 
but it also calls us the brothers and sisters of Christ. Our heavenly master is also our heavenly brother who loves us with a perfect brotherly love. So our divine master is not ruthless. He does not seek to profit from our poverty. Instead, he became poor for our sake. He took on the form of a slave for us. I came not to be served, but to serve, our master says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. All glory be to you, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave your life as a ransom for us, your poor brothers and sisters. The day of your death was the true day of atonement, by which you won for us an eternal Sabbath of rest with God and an eternal jubilee of freedom from sin. Give us a loud trumpet by your Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim this liberty throughout all the earth and to all people. Amen. Amen.